Section 5 of The Life of Charlemagne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Charlemagne by Notger the Stammerer. Translated by Arthur James Grant. Section 5. Book 2. Part 1. As I am going to found this narrative on the story told by a man of the world who had little skill in letters, I think it will be well that I should first recount something of earlier history on the credit of written books. When Julian, whom God hated, was slain in the Persian War by a blow from heaven, not only did the transmarine provinces fall away from the Roman Empire, but also the neighboring provinces of Pannonia, Noricum, Retia, or, in other words, the Germans and the Franks or Gauls. Then, too, the kings of the Franks or Gauls began to decay in power because they had slain St. Didier, Bishop of Vienna, and had expelled those most holy visitors, Columban and Gaul. Whereupon the race of the Huns, who had already often ravaged Francia and Aquitania, uh, that is to say, the Gauls and the Spains, now poured out with all their forces, devastated the whole land like a wide-sweeping conflagration, and then carried off all their spoils to a very safe hiding-place. Now, Adalbert, whom I have already mentioned, used to explain the nature of this hiding-place as follows. The land of the Huns, he would say, was surrounded by nine rings. I could not think of any rings except our ordinary wicker rings for sheepfolds, and so I asked, What in the name of wonder do you mean, sir? Well, he said, it was fortified by nine hedges. I could not think of any hedges except those that protect our cornfields. So again I asked, and he answered, one ring was as wide, that is, it contained as much within it as all the country between Tours and Constance. It was fashioned with logs of oak and ash and yew, and was twenty feet wide and the same in height. All the space within was filled with hard stones and binding clay, and the surface of these great ramparts was covered with sods and grass. Within the limits of the ring, shrubs were planted, of such a kind that, when lopped and bent down, they still threw out twigs and leaves. Then between these ramparts, hamlets and houses were so arranged that a man's voice could be made to reach from one to the other. And opposite to the houses, at intervals in those unconquerable walls, were constructed doors of no great size, and through these doors the inhabitants from far and near would pour out on marauding expeditions. The second ring was like the first, and was distant twenty Teutonic miles, or forty Italian, from the third ring, and so on to the ninth, though of course the successive rings were each much narrower than the preceding one. But in all the circles, the estates and houses were everywhere so arranged that the peal of the trumpet would carry the news of any event from one to the other. For two hundred years and more, the Huns had swept the wealth of the western states within these fortifications. And, as the Goths and Vandals were disturbing the repose of the world at the same time, the western world was almost turned into a desert. 
but the most unconquerable charles so subdued them in eight years that he allowed scarcely any traces of them to remain he withdrew his hand from the bulgarians because after the destruction of the huns they did not seem likely to do any harm to the kingdom of the franks all the booty of the huns which he found in pannonia he divided most liberally among the bishoprics and the monasteries in the saxon war in which he was engaged in person for some considerable time two private men whose names i know but modesty forbids me to give them organized a storming party and destroyed with great courage the walls of a very strong city and fortification when the most just charles saw this he made one of them with the consent of his master kerold commander of the country between the rhine and the italian alps and the other he enriched with gifts of land at the same time there were the sons of two nobles whose duty it was to watch at the door of the king's tent but one night they lay as dead soaked in liquor while charles wakeful as usual went the round of the camp and came back to his tent without any one having noticed him when morning came he called to him the chiefs of his kingdom and asked them what punishment seemed due to those who betrayed the king of the franks into the hands of the enemy then these nobles quite ignorant of what had occurred declared that such a man was worthy of death but charles merely upbraided them bitterly and let them go unharmed there were also with him two bastards the children of a concubine as they had fought in battle most bravely the emperor asked them whose children they were and where they were born when he was informed of the facts he called them to his tent at midday and said my good fellows i want you to serve me and me only they exclaimed that they were there for no other purpose than to take even the lowest place in his service well then said charles you must serve in my chamber they concealed their indignation and said they would be glad to do so but soon they seized the moment when the emperor had begun to sleep soundly and then rushed out to the camp of the enemy and in the fray that followed wiped out the taint of servitude in their own blood and that of the enemy but occupations such as these did not prevent the high-souled emperor from sending frequent messengers carrying letters and presents to the kings of the most distant regions and they sent him in turn whatever honors their lands could bestow from the theatre of the saxon war he sent messengers to the king of constantinople who asked them whether the kingdom of his son charles was at peace or was being invaded by the neighboring peoples then the leader of the embassy made answer that peace reigned everywhere except only that a certain race called the saxons were disturbing the territories of the franks by frequent raids whereupon the sluggish and unwarlike greek king answered pooh why should my son take so much trouble about a petty enemy that possesses neither fame nor valor i will give you the saxon race and all that belong to it when the envoy on his return gave this message to the most warlike charles he smiled and said the king would have shown greater kindness to you if he had given you a leg wrap for your long journey 
I must not conceal the wise answer which the same envoy gave during his embassy to Greece. He came with his companions to one of the royal towns in the autumn. The party was divided for entertainment, and the envoy of whom I speak was quartered on a certain bishop. This bishop was given up to fasting and prayer, and left the envoy to perish of almost continuous hunger. But, with the first smile of spring, he presented the envoy to the king. The king asked him his opinion of the bishop. Then the envoy sighed from the very bottom of his heart, and said, That bishop of yours reaches the highest point of holiness that can be attained to without God. The king was amazed, and said, What, can a man be holy without God? Then said the envoy, It is written, God is love, and in that grace he is entirely lacking. Thereupon the king of Constantinople invited him to his banquet, and placed him among his nobles. Now these had a law that no guest at the king's table, whether a native or a foreigner, should turn over any animal or part of an animal. He must eat only the upper part of whatever was placed before him. Now a river fish covered with spice was brought and placed on the dish before him. He knew nothing of the custom, and turned the fish over, whereupon all the nobles rose up and cried, Master, you are dishonored, as no king ever was before you. Then the king groaned and said to our envoy, I cannot resist them. You must be put to death at once. But ask me any other favor you like, and I will grant it. He thought a while, and then in the hearing of all pronounced these words, I pray you, Lord Emperor, that in accordance with your promise you will grant me one small petition. And the king said, Ask what you will, and you shall have it, except only that I may not give you your life, for that is against the law of the Greeks. Then said the envoy, With my dying breath I ask one favor. Let every one who saw me turn that fish over be deprived of his eyes. The king was amazed at the stipulation, and swore by Christ that he had seen nothing, but had only trusted the word of others. Then the queen began to excuse herself. By the beneficent mother of God, the holy Mary, I notice nothing. Then the other nobles, in their desire to escape from the danger, swore, one by the keeper of the keys of heaven, and another by the apostle of the Gentiles, and all the rest by the virtue of the angels and the companies of the saints, that they were beyond the reach of the stipulation. And so the clever Frank beat the empty-headed Greeks in their own land, and came home safe and sound. A few years later the unwearied Charles sent to Greece a certain bishop remarkable both for his physical and mental gifts, and with him the most noble Duke Hugo. After a long delay they were at last brought into the presence of the king, and then sent about to all manner of places. But at last they got their dismissal and returned, after paying heavily for their journey by sea and land. Soon afterwards the Greek king sent his envoy to the most glorious Charles. It so happened that the bishop and the duke, whom I have mentioned, were just then with the emperor. 
when it was announced that the envoys were coming, they advised the most wise Charles to have them led round through mountains and deserts, so that they should only come into the emperor's presence when their clothes had been worn and wasted, and their money was entirely spent. This was done, and when at last they arrived, the bishop and his comrade bade the count of the stables take his seat on a high throne in the midst of his underlings, so that it was impossible to believe him any one lower than the emperor. When the envoys saw him, they fell upon the ground and wanted to worship him, but they were prevented by the ministers and forced to go farther. Then they saw the count of the palace presiding over a gathering of the nobles, and again they thought it was the emperor, and flung themselves to earth. But those who were present drove them forward with blows, and said, That is not the emperor. Next they saw the master of the royal table surrounded by his noble band of servants, and again they fell to the ground, thinking that it was the emperor. Driven thence, they found the chamberlains of the emperor and their chief in council together, and then they did not doubt but that they were in the presence of the first of living men. But this man, too, denied that he was what they took him for, and yet he promised that he would use his influence with the nobles of the palace, so that, if possible, the envoys might come into the presence of the most august emperor. Then there came servants from the imperial presence to introduce them with full honors. Now Charles, the most gracious of kings, was standing by an open window leaning upon Bishop Hito, for that was the name of the bishop who had been sent to Constantinople. The emperor was clad in gems and gold, and glittered like the sun at its rising, and round about him stood, as it were, the chivalry of heaven, three young men, his sons, who have since been made partners in the kingdom, his daughters and their mother, decorated with wisdom and beauty as well as with pearls, leaders of the church, unsurpassed in dignity and virtue, abbots, distinguished for their high birth and their sanctity, nobles like Joshua when he appeared in the camp of Gilgal, and an army like that which drove back the Syrians and Assyrians out of Samaria, so that if David had been there, he might well have sung, Kings of the earth and all people, princes and all judges of the earth, both young men and maidens, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord. Then the envoys of the Greeks were astonished. Their spirit left them and their courage failed. Speechless and lifeless they fell upon the ground. But the most kindly emperor raised them and tried to cheer them with encouraging words. At last life returned to them. But when they saw Hito, whom they had once despised and rejected, now in so great honor, again they groveled on the ground in terror until the king swore to them by the king of heaven that he would do them no harm. They took heart at this promise and began to act with a little more confidence, and so home they went and never came back again. End of section 5